Romans 15. This is the word of the Lord. It was written a long time ago. But the beautiful thing about the scriptures is that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was written for a very specific time and place. And part of that specific time and place is today. This is God's word for you. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are delighted to have your Spirit within us. For we know we would not understand the Scriptures apart from Him. And we know, written right here, that what was written was written for our instruction, that we might have hope. And Lord, we ask now that you would have this time be both a time of instruction and a time of hope. And we know that in order to have instruction and in order to have hope, we need to see Jesus and we need to see ourselves. We need to see ourselves as sinners redeemed by the mighty God. And we need to see King Jesus as that only Redeemer. We ask that you would do that now through the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 40% growth this year. 40% growth. That's a lot of growth in a year. I mean, think about it. Like, let's think about your savings account. What would you be doing right now if your savings account had grown 40% this year? Aside from wishing you had had more money in it to start with. Right? And be very positive. Think, well, what about, well, if you heard from the doctor, well, the cancer it's grown 40% this year. Well, that's, that's not okay now, is it? That's a big amount of growth. Or wait, even better yet, you read the paper on Tuesday when you get it, and it says that the population of Fort Mill has grown by 40% this year. I don't think it has, but judging by the number of cars on the road, you might actually, I don't know, it might be... You think about growth of that size, and if it's a good thing, that's a lot of good growth. And if it's a bad thing, it's a lot of bad growth. But that is a huge amount of growth. And uh, recognizing that my math is a little bit fuzzy, that's about the amount of growth this church has had in her membership this year. 40% growth. That's, again, fuzzy math, but it's close enough. 
40% growth. And we think about that again, like Fort Mill. If the population of Fort Mill grew by 40%, Uh, this year, that would be fantastic. There would be more people and we would enjoy one another and we'd have additional neighbors and I'm sure our schools would love it as our tax money increased and it would be delightful all around, but there would be great complications that would come with it. As in what to do with that intersection right down there or the intersection down by my house or the intersection next to any of your houses because we have too many cars on the road. It would be very challenging as well. This sermon is in light of that same kind of concept as the Lord has blessed us with so much growth this year. But as we have grown, there are challenges that come with growth, right? We had two new members coming in. We're going to have a litany of others coming after. It's fantastic. What do we do with that growth and the Roman church is, in some sense, kind of having that same kind of struggle as the church is growing, and it's growing in Rome very well. It's a large metropolitan city, and the church has begun to thrive. Here, Paul has written to them this amazing explanation of who he is and the gospel that God teaches. And near gets here, near the end, gets to explain kind of what are the consequences of the work of Jesus. What are the consequences of the church, uh, for the church? And in this passage, the structure is a bit complicated, but we're going to break it down into a bunch of very quick pieces. This sermon really could be probably, I don't know, two and a half hours long. It's not going to be, so we're going to move quickly. But the first thing we're going to look at are there are three specific commands for the growing church. What are God's people supposed to be like? And it's specifically kind of geared for a church that is growing. First, well, verse 1, we are called, God's people are called to bear one another's burdens. Verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. The church is called to bear one another's burdens. Now, this is actually following within a larger context of the conversation. It's actually a summary of the end of chapter 14. As he's actually talking about not simply wrestling through the difficulties of life, but wrestling through the questions of conscience. As the church in Rome grows, you have Jews that are coming in who have a tremendous knowledge of the Old Testament. They have a tremendous knowledge of the sacrificial system and they are coming out of Jewish culture. As they come out of Jewish culture, they have sometimes a struggle discerning what, well, what is Jewish and what is Christian. And some of them erred on the side and took too much Jewish stuff with them and some of them maybe didn't and didn't take quite enough. They're wrestling through that. But as the Jews come in, what comes with from Judaism, but not just Jews. You have pagans being converted. And as the pagans are converted, you have all kinds of questions of conscience coming with them of, well, what do we do with meat that was offered to idols? Are we allowed to have that? Because it was a meat that was specifically offered to an idol. And they have all kinds of questions as to what it looks like to be Christian. And as they continue to grow and as they continue to multiply, they continue to have more and more and more diverse convictions and opinions. 
And in fact, actually, much of the New Testament writing, certainly by Paul, is trying to help the early church navigate, what do I do in circumstances where I feel like we should go that way and my brother feels like he should go that way? What do we do when we disagree? What do we do with the question of alcohol, where some might think that it's a grievous sin to drink it at all, and others might think that it's only a grievous sin to drink it in excess? What do we do with questions of conscience? How do we handle these views? And he sums it up here, his entire argument from the previous chapter, with a simple kind of illustration. The strong are to support the weak. The strong are to help carry, support, encourage, bear with the failings of the weak. And not only should they do that, they actually have an obligation to bear with one another, to walk alongside one another, to not grow weary of one another but to encourage them. When I was in college, I had a friend who had an old VW Bug, uh, diesel, like the old ones, right? Uh, And he loved the car. It looked like, uh, was it Herbie from the old Disney movies? He looked just a white car, same thing, missing the stripes. Uh, But his friends had an obnoxious habit with it because the car was so light, they liked to hide it places, Uh, And by that, I mean they literally would pick it up and carry it across campus and hide it places. Sometimes it was in places where he was unable to get it down, meaning it could not be driven off of the, uh, you know, cliff that it had been placed upon or whatever. And so he would call the rest of his friends, whom he actually considered friends, and we would help him go out and bear his burden. He could not pick up his car by himself But with five others, you could. It wasn't actually that heavy of a car. It's amazing he didn't die in a car accident at some point in it because you could just pick it up and heave ho and throw it right over on the road and drive it off, which is what they were doing in the first place. He needed help. He needed help bearing burdens that he could not carry that were far too heavy for him, far too discouraging for him, far too debilitating for him. He couldn't go places without his vehicle. Maybe a little bit more kind of clear illustration of how this would work would be uh, of a a Marine or somebody coming back from service in Afghanistan or Iraq. A dear friend, I walked through this with him, and when he came back from Iraq, I remember him saying quotes like, I hate the sound of children playing because I cannot distinguish it from the sound of children dying. He had all of the marks of war in his heart. When you woke him up, you had to throw shoes at him because he woke up, you know, ready to do physical harm to whoever was there. His conscience was so heavily burdened with the the results of war, the loss, the destruction, the constant readiness, the, the wired so tightly you never let down your guard that as he came back to the States and had to reacclimatize, his friends had to come alongside him and bear with him. And encourage him and lift him up and to show kindness to his failings. You see, as the church, this church continues to grow, we're going to find ourselves constantly in situations of divergent opinions. 
Some people will think the church needs to go that way, and some people think the church needs to go that way. And both of them sound like great ideas, but we're going to wrestle through that. We're going to find ourselves in greater situations where consciences will be diverse. This is important to me. I don't care about that. I care about this. I don't care about that. I care about the first thing. How do we as a church, as we continue to grow and continue to multiply, navigate that challenge? Well, the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Kind of actually frames that conversation a little bit differently, doesn't it? It takes a little bit of the heat out of that conversation, doesn't it? And adds a little bit of tenderness and compassion. That when those that are dead set on going the wrong direction, and trust me, friends, those people will be here if they are not already. It is a failing. It is a weakness. Not a source of anger. Not a source for frustration. It should be fuel for pity. For compassion. For tenderness. For bearing with them. You see, one of the consequences, one of the things to think about is that faulty theology always has consequences in faulty living. So anytime you see somebody, you know that they're tragically, theologically wrong for something that will have consequences in their life. You don't get angry at them. You show compassion. Show mercy. Come alongside. Pray for them. Ask, how can you serve the Lord's people? Whose burden can I help carry? How can I help shepherd the people of God? Now, there is one great danger in this. One great danger. And the great danger is that we immediately begin to identify ourselves with one particular side of this equation, don't we? I mean, if I read it again, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Who do we all immediately, it's actually written from my perspective, where I immediately assume that I'm the strong and you're the weak. And we all do that. I mean, it's just the human heart. As we continue to grow, should the Lord continue to bless us 40% next year, 40% the year, who knows? It will be increasingly important for us to be humble enough to at least consider I might be the weaker brother in this conversation. I might be the one who doesn't actually understand. I might be the one that's pushing forth failings and not knowing it. That's command number one. He doesn't stop there. I mean, of course, that's going to make for a better and healthier church, but he continues on. God's church is called to please our Christian neighbors in righteousness. This is one and a half through two, right? To bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So not just bearing their burdens, not just taking into account their failings, not just having compassion on the areas where they're wrong or their bad ideas or just their great passion in the wrong direction. 
but to endeavor to please your neighbor, your Christian neighbor in the church, for his own good to build him up. So while we go about bearing their burdens and while we go about bearing their failings, we are also to go about pleasing them, building them up, encouraging them. Another way to maybe say this is as we work, well, I'll put it in Disney language, whistle while you work. Right? As you go about your work, there's no need to make it needlessly difficult. There's no need for us to adopt a culture of being needlessly obnoxious, but rather to be agreeable. So that as we are persuading people and interacting with people and encouraging people, they are delighted through the process. One of the commentators put it this way. I I liked how this read. Pleasing God above all, and while doing so also pleasing God's image bearers, including even ourselves, is the very purpose for which God created and redeemed us. So pleasing God... And in doing so, also pleasing image bearers is the very purpose that we're created for. Even pleasing ourselves as we please him. Right? So if you're getting pleasure by coming to church this morning, that's a good thing. Right? You please God, you're pleasing others and yourselves. There's no need for us to be needlessly difficult to make life needlessly obnoxious. Right? A great illustration of this for those of you that grew up with siblings and you had to do chores together. Right? You remember that time where, where mom or dad would say, you know what, you guys fold the sheets. Do you ever fold sheets or blankets with a sibling? Ah, it's a delight, isn't it? One of the siblings is trying to work and folding the sheets, and the other one's standing at the other end. And every time they get ready to fold it, they get that little tug that yanks it right out of the other one's hands, and you've got to start over. And then you pick up the sheet again, you start folding, they get that little tug and yank it right out of your hands and you've got to start over. And you keep folding the same sheet over and over and over and over again because one of them is making life disagreeable for disagreeable sake. See, this is the issue that he's addressing here is not simply coming alongside and and having a sense of compassion and favor for one another, but doing so in a winsome and delightful fashion. So that as God's people serve one another, it's not disagreeable, needlessly unpleasant. It's like the, the ethos, the culture of God's church is one of delight. Where one Christian neighbor delights in another one and seeks their joy. And again, there's dangers connected to this. All of these commands have dangers. And this one is very clear as this command is explicitly, you should make others happy. Right? You should be pleasing to others. Well, there's a danger. One is that we can grow too focused on others. And let them rule our lives, or that we could not be focused enough on them and exclude his people. There's, there's two kind of parallel evils here that we can fall prey to. The first of focusing too much on others is to give them power that you're not designed to give them. 
to let them rule your life, to let them run your life, to have everything in your existence shaped by their good pleasure. I remember growing up in the church and uh, hearing the senior pastor at one point, he bought a very used Lexus. It was very used. It was paid for in cash. There was no debt. But yet still when he bought it, he had to stand up in front of the church and explain to the church why he bought the car that he did. Because at the time, the church that I was a member of, it, it was, there was enough of a culture of um, uh, distrust, we'll maybe put that people didn't delight in his ability to buy a very nice used car for an excellent price and had to give explanation about that from the pulpit. The church had lost that idea so much that his focus had to be so concerned with others, it absolutely backfired. The other danger is that we go about pursuing God so aggressively that we forget about his people, we forget about the church. Calvin has a famous quote where he says, If God is our father, the church is our mother. You can't be saved without the church. That's where the collection of God's people meet. It's where we worship him and hear from him. It is where we interact together corporately. You don't get this preaching of the word any other place. So to have our our culture of the church to be one of seeking the delight of our Christian neighbors, seeking the delight of the church, to see joy in one another, to rejoice in each other's successes and victories. And if you just paused right there and stopped and asked the question, well, who would want to be a part of that type of group? Just any group, right? The type of group that's going to show pity and compassion on you when you're wrong that's going to come alongside you and support you and encourage you when you're weak, a type of group where uh, they're going to rejoice when you rejoice and cry when you cry and delight in your victories. Well, who wants to be a part of that group? Everybody. (laughs) I don't think I know a person who's going to say, well, that sounds terrible. I don't want to be a part of that. I mean, that sounds glorious. That sounds like what many of us had this week at vacation, or, you know, on our Thanksgiving vacation. We got to meet with family that got to support and encourage each other. But if that weren't delightful enough, it doesn't stop there. Continues on. And this one, it jumps to the end in verse 7. Therefore, in light of all of this, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So first command, the church is to bear one another's burdens. Second command, the church is called to please our Christian neighbors in righteousness. The third, the church is called to welcome one another. To receive God's people in. To be active and aggressive at adding to that number. To increase that number. To see that 40% continue to come in. Now, here specifically, he's referring to that uh, verse 1 again. Where you have those that are strong and those that are weak. And it would be very easy for a Christian to say, well, I'm part of the strong, you're part of the weak, there's a gap between the two of us. Or it would be easy for us to say, well, I'm one of those ones that's struggling, I'm still learning, I'm a baby at this thing, you've got it so far figured out, you're way up there and I'm way down here and we're just separated by this gap. 
what God is saying is that's wrong. The church is to be welcoming and to be absorbing, to be including, to be constantly like growing together and morphing in, right? As a kid, you remember driving in the rain and watching the raindrops on the, the side of the windows of the car. And like my sister and I, we played weird games. We loved watching the, the raindrops merge and to see who could get the biggest raindrop to kind of run down the side of the window. That's kind of in essence what the church is supposed to be. That when she meets other Christians, she sucks them in and, you know, envelops them quickly and morphs into this bigger raindrop that finds another little one and eats that one too and then eats the other one as it continues to grow into a larger and healthier body. The church is to have a general warmth and affection for all combined with a willingness to play ball by their rules. Right? That's part of what this welcoming is, is to be willing to meet others on their turf and not just on our own. And I would say, by and large, this is something this church does very, very well. I would say, by and large, this church is one of the most welcoming churches I have ever seen. I might make just one particular application on this one, and that is, um, as we continue to grow, it will be an increasingly common occurrence for our toes to get stepped on. Because there will be more feet making steps. I'm not meaning literally there, I mean figuratively. It will be easier and easier for us to get our feelings hurt. To have like our, feel like our, our little honor, our little ego got offended. And to try to bear that up within us. And uh, there are a few things uh, that we see kill a welcoming spirit faster than an unforgiving one. Uh, it's one of the challenges of being in such a small space as well as as we continue to grow and add more bodies into this room, there's no place to run and hide anymore. Right? You can't hide from the people that are driving you crazy. You can't hide from your hurt feelings and you can't hide from your lack of forgiveness. You got to face it. If you want to continue that welcoming spirit, we must cultivate a forgiving spirit. Well, you would say, well, my goodness, I mean, that's, that's hard to do, isn't it? I mean, one, that, that sounds amazing. I would love to be a part of a group that is so welcoming, that is so encouraging, that is so uplifting and uh, able to, to strengthen one another and seek each other's well-being. I would love to be a part of that, but that sounds like an unbelievably difficult task. I mean, that is such a challenge. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, God, in his wisdom, gives us an additional motivation. Not just self-seeking, though that is absolutely the truth. If you want to receive those benefits, you should do this. But gives us an even better one located in verse 3. The motivation for the church is, if Christ did it, then we should too. And that's going to be kind of your, your motivation here. We're going to look at this. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So he's creating here a logical argument. It's an argument from greater to lesser where he's going to say, let's look at this great big gigantic illustration. And if it's true in the great big gigantic illustration, well, certainly it should be true in the small one as well. The great, big, gigantic illustration is King Jesus himself. That the second person of the Trinity, 
that eternally begotten, glorious Son of God would step inside time and space, step inside humanity, step inside a a finite experience, step inside of this existence, be made as one under the law, have the effect of gravity, have the effect of aging, have to get sick, have to sleep, have to go to the bathroom, do all of the things that he never did before. So that he might do these very commands to us. He's done this to me already and to you already. Has he not borne with my failings and encouraged me and strengthened me through them? Absolutely, he has. My failings are too numerous to count, and so are yours. And yet he is with you, he has not left you, he has not forsaken you. He's there. Does he seek your good pleasure? <laughs> I mean, is there, is there anyone who seeks our good pleasure more than the Lord Jesus? And his commands are right and true. They are delightful. They give life and joy. He gives us hope and peace. He's conquered and given us gifts. He's given us all delightful things for life abundant. Is he welcoming? Well, yeah, he's welcomed us into heaven. <laughs> He's made a way, the only way whereby men and women, boys and girls, can go from this life into heaven itself. If Christ has done this great and huge thing, why would I do anything less to one of you? If he's willing to come so low, why would I be any less? It's the same argument that John makes when the washing of the feet If King Jesus is willing to wash feet, why would I not be willing to wash feet? If King Jesus is willing to do janitorial duty, that's what that is, why would I have a problem cleaning a toilet? Why am I going to argue with what King Jesus has done? Am I better than the Lord? Am I better than the second person in the Trinity? Is my honor more important than Christ's honor? It's great motivation working in our souls. In fact, well, okay, all right, so I've got the commands. I've got the motivation. Well, some of us are going to say, well, I I don't know what that looks like. I mean, it's a short sermon. You can't, well, it's not really that short of a sermon, but you can't tell me all of the ways, what it looks like to bear with one another's burdens. You can't tell me all of the ways that it means to be welcoming. Does that mean I need to have people in my home all the time? Does it mean we go out to eat once a week? What does that look like? Well, that question's answered, isn't it? Uh, We're given a motivation. We're given a guide. Right, So three commands, one motivation, one guide. The guide is, in verse 4, the scriptures are our only rule of faith and practice. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Why was this book written? It tells us that. Two purposes, to instruct us and to give us hope. It's the the way to do what we're talking about doing. 
It gives us the way to go about doing that. What, what are the things that are important? What are the things we should be flexible on? Should we be flexible on justification or the atonement? No. Should we be flexible on other things, maybe? What are we supposed to be flexible on? Where do we get wisdom? It's in the book. All of those questions of how to live my life, how to figure out how to be a Christian, how to figure out how to minister in the church, all of them are answered in the scriptures. And only in the scriptures. They show us what to do. They show us how to implement this. They show us what it looks like. It's our illustration, our commander. It tells us how to do this. Well, you would then say, well, okay, I got the command, three commands, I get that. A motivation that may or may not be motivating enough for me, okay, fair enough. I've got the scriptures which tell me how to do this, but that still doesn't actually help me do this. I mean, this is telling me what type of church we are to be, and if we continue to grow what we want to be, but it actually doesn't give us the power. It's in the text, though, isn't it? He actually interrupts himself in verse 5 to give explanation to that. Where is the power for this? May the God of endurance and encouragement... Notice those are the two words used in verse 4 for what, how we are to keep the scriptures. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we approach this task, which is completely overwhelming for the mortal man, for the man or woman of God, it is overwhelming, but God is greater. And he tells us why here. May the God of endurance and encouragement. All right, so the God who gives endurance, the God who gives encouragement, may he also give you harmony. May he give you unity. May he give you the ability as a church with one voice to worship the Lord. May he give you success at this. Well, where is the power? You see, if we go about as we continue to grow, seeking to keep these attributes in the front of who we are, do we want to continue being a welcoming church? Yes. Right? The day we stop being a welcoming church, the day that the tenor of these sermons is going to take a little different tone, right? a little bit more confrontational. The day that we stop trying to welcome one another or encourage one another, forgive one another, lift up one another. That's when we run into problems. Likewise, the day we try to do this in our own ability to try to do this apart from the work of the Lord, to try to build some spectacular mausoleum of a social club, is the day we fail. All of this rests upon that one and great redeeming work of the Lord Jesus, that by His redeeming work, by His power within us, by His Spirit that has changed our hearts, that we are then able to extend Mercy and pity and love 
Well, what do we do with this? I'm going to give a couple of quick applications very quickly. One is uh, as we bring in our new members, like I said, uh, Clarentetica are the first of many. Be sure that you get to know them. So look around the room. Half the people are going to be the people taking vows or more than that. Get to know the new folks for the six people that have been here long term. Get to know the new people, right? Be sure you know their names. Uh, Try to get to know where they're from. Know a couple of things about Build that welcoming spirit. If you don't know who they are, you cannot welcome them, right? Likewise, you also rob both of you of a, a little bit of the joy of this process of preparation for heaven. This time here is a jumpstart on glory. It's actually the same thing with marriage. You get to know someone here a little bit so that when you get to glory and neither of you have sin anymore, you're able to get to know each other a lot better, right? Nikki and I have gotten to know each other fairly well in almost, what, 12 years of marriage. But the moment I meet her in glory, I will know her infinitely better then than I did now because she won't be sinning and I won't either. That's part of what the welcoming spirit is, is preparation for heaven. You need to get to know people. Secondly, I would encourage you to uh, think about these commands and ask yourself, how can I intentionally try to keep these better? Where are ways in which I can cultivate this? Whether that be bearing one another's burdens or being welcoming in the church or looking out for my neighbor's delight, where can I be doing these things as well? And honestly, if you begin to ask the Lord for that, I'm pretty much guarantee he'll show you something. And then lastly, and probably most importantly, and certainly most difficultly of all of these, is to examine our own hearts for the things that are stopping this. Where is our ego getting in the way? Where is an unforgiving or bitter spirit getting in the way? What do we have, what are we holding on to that's keeping us from fulfilling the commands of God? And He loves you. He's going to make sure that's going to be changed in your life. He's going to make sure that's going to be changed in my life. The easiest way to change that is to begin right now. To sort out what's going on in our head and in our hearts and say, Lord, I haven't forgiven this person. That's not okay. That's not okay at all. And I need your help to forgive now. That I might then begin to be more welcoming and encouraging and edifying for your glory so that with one voice we might glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May that be true for us today. 40% is a huge number. It really is. But it's not the first time we've hit that number in this church's history. It's not the first time we've hit that number in this decade. It may not be the, ne- the last time the Lord gives it either. May we be ready, aggressively preparing for all of the people the Lord brings in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your church. We thank you that Jesus loves her so much that he died for her. And while thankfully none of us have yet been called to die for her, we are certainly called to live for her. And so we ask that you would, in your mercy, in your power, Make us able. In Jesus' name, amen.